Welcome to the Media and Explorers podcast. This is Frederick Strang. In this episode, I'm elated to take you to the top of the world as well as to the deepest place on earth, the Challenger Deep, as I speak to record breaker British American Vanessa O'Brien. Vanessa is a former business executive in the banking world, and exploration was not a certain outcome as it was not in her blood as a youth. During the economic recession in 2009, she decided to quit climbing the corporate ladder and instead, over a lunch, a friend of her suggested, why not climb Everest? Said and done, Vanessa gave herself a time-limited goal to climb Everest and since then adventure and exploration has been the guiding light in her life. Vanessa's story is truly unique. Having gone from Wall Street into the world of adventure with an impressive list of accomplishments, for instance, the fastest woman to complete the Explorer's Grand Slam, which entails the seven summits and reaching both North and South Pole in merely 295 days. And also being the first American British woman to successfully summit the second tallest peak in the world, Shigori, also known as K2. Recently she has been all over the news, as she on June 8 to 9, 2020, along with Katie Sullivan became the first woman to reach the Challenger Deep, which is known to be the deepest point in the ocean, which makes Vanessa the first woman to reach the highest and lowest point on Earth. She's a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society and a member of the Scientific Exploration Society and have conducted several research expeditions and charity projects during her time as an explorer. She's not a typical adrenaline junkie, but rather a goal-oriented analytic personality who likes to motivate people to step outside their comfort zone and take calculated risks. What attracted Vanessa in mountains was the stark goal, something so outrageous that would take her some years to train for and overcome. No one can question her impeccable willpower and, and once she set a goal, she pursues it with a laser beam focus. I'm eager to discuss where this force derives from, how it can be a force for good alongside with topics as risk management, happiness, loss and climate change. Vanessa is perhaps the most unlikely person to have become a well-renowned adventurer, going from banking to exploring and I wonder if Ernst Hemingway had something to do with it as he exhorts. There are only three sports, bullfighting, motor racing and mountaineering. All the rest are merely games. So without further delay, I bring you Vanessa O'Brien. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You're the first woman to stand on top of the tallest mountain in the world and to dive to the deepest trench known to man called Challenger Deep, 10,925 meters. And everyone wants to know, how did it feel to have eight tons per square inch pressure around you and touch the bottom seabed? Well, it's probably a good thing that you can't feel it because it would probably not feel very good. Um, luckily, our submersible was pressurized and um, a bit like an airplane is pressurized. 
So uh, you can't actually feel it, um, although you know it is eight tons, and eight tons is roughly 16,000 pounds per square inch. Um, but you can hear things. So psychologically, you can hear little creaks and, and things like that. And, and from my perspective, that's like the, um, say the fiberglass getting, you know, kind of crunched a little bit. And as you go down, that the creaks are, are like squeezing of the fiberglass against the titanium. So that's a little bit daunting for the imagination. Um, one of the defining features of the limiting factor, which is what that submersible was called, is it's got 90 millimeters uh, thick titanium on the pressure of the hull, and it's been pressure tested uh, so that it can withstand the pressure. And by the time I got into this machine, it had already been to the deepest depths a number of times, so I wasn't taking, um, you know, a big risk. I wasn't going first down to the depths in this machine. But nonetheless, you know, there had been um, remote controlled vehicles, usually named after Greek, um, you know, gods or, you know, some sort of sea titans um, that had gone to the depths and imploded. So Nereus is one I think of in 2014 that um, was uh, found imploded under pressure when bits were floating around the top of the ocean after I think it had hit 9,900 meters. So, you know, uh, it's not like these things don't have accidents over time. So that's always sort of in the back of your mind as well. Having that in top of mind, how in earth can it feel reassuring when you're going down in that piece of machinery, knowing that the statistics, it's possible that it will implode? Uh, how do you cope with that stress you know it's it's interesting you know like so historically in 1960 before i was born the first the first um, man-made vehicle went down um and that was um you know two men in a very very large vehicle but their space was maybe the size of a refrigerator you know a, a medium-sized refrigerator where they actually the, where their compartment sat um, and when they went down, like everything cracked, the windows cracked, you know, you know, it, it was, it was clumsy and they hit the bottom and, you know, all the sediment came up and, you know, they, they couldn't really stay down. And that machine went one time, went up and was, you know, uh, decommissioned. And even, even 52, what is it? 52 years later when James Cameron went in 2012, his vehicle only went one time you know, decommissioned. These vehicles never really were meant to go multiple times. Um, so there's that sort of feeling like, okay, you know, how many, how many times can a vehicle, um, you know, uh, undertake this kind of journey? And you don't really know because I, you know, when you're sitting in, in that submersible, you've got this, um, the first thing that you understand when you go in, I only went in once before I went down for, for real, is there, there's a whole lot of electricity and electricity and water just don't mix, right? And it's almost like um, when, you, when you go down into the hatch, which is a, you know, just a tiny little porthole, you sit into something that is probably like a, maybe, maybe the cockpit of an airplane but along the top is a whole bunch of oxygen bottles. And it's 
a very, very small space. And uh, there's a whole bunch of lights and a whole bunch of, um, you know, uh, controls and, um, you know, uh, underwater we use sonar, above water we use radar. But all of these controls and uh, electronics ultimately don't go well with water and you are surrounded by water and you're relying on thrusters and batteries and, and other things. So, you know, you do your best to, um, you know, remain calm and you're taught about what, what to do if, um, you know, say uh, the oxygen were to, were to, were to go and uh, say we were to lose consciousness and what the backup redundancy systems are. But the reality is, is it takes four hours to get to the bottom. And um, if, if we were to lose consciousness and go into uh, an artificial oxygen environment, chances are that they, they may, there's a system called watchdog that you have to turn off. And if you don't turn off that noise, the sub will automatically bring you up. And I think um, the reality is, although nobody likes to talk like this, if you don't turn that signal off and it were to automatically bring you up, it's probably not bringing up somebody that's alive, if you understand that. So, so I think there's always risks um, that, that are taken, even though you know that there's a temporary oxygen bottle and then there's a permanent oxygen bottle and these things will bring you to the surface, but that there are also situations that might occur with a gas exchange that you might not make it. Well, there's a gazillion questions I could ask you about this. <laughs> I have the goosebumps because there's, I can feel the tension, I can feel the, the constriction and uh, the awkwardness that must involve in being in such a confined department. And, and, but we will leave that and, and ask for the audience indulgence on this because before I let you enthuse us with these stories and the highs and lows from Everest to Challenger Deep, your odd but perhaps not surprising conversion from working in the banking world to the inception of your adventurous journeys, polar expeditions inspiring others to realize their own dreams, charity projects and scientific expeditions, we would like to know a little bit about yourself and your background. So please, who are you? Where do you come from? And how do you come to be? Sure. Actually, the timing of that question is, is excellent because um, about a year ago, I interviewed with a, a PhD who was writing a book. And I, I had no idea what he was going to say um, based on this interview. But uh, the book's just come out and it's called Personality Isn't Permanent. And his name is Benjamin Hardy. He's a PhD. And, you know, it's kind of daunting because you, you interview with somebody and you're like, okay, well, it's all out there. Like, I have no idea if he's going to, you know, say something positive, negative, if he's going to paint me like as a, you know, a good character, a bad character, whatever. But his book, Personality Isn't Permanent, the premise was how to break free from self-limiting beliefs. And, you know, if you wanted to rewrite your story that your, your past isn't um, you're not uh, constrained by your past. And so what he did was he basically listened to my journey going from, you know, um, banking and, um, you know, following a, a recession and taking up mountaineering. And he starts the book about his journey and how a personality test 
which labeled him a color, almost stopped him and his wife from getting married because she was the wrong color, or he was the wrong color for her. And well, that's funny, um, you know, it was real at the time, and they, they can laugh about it now, but they went through a tough time about it then. And probably at some point, we've all taken personality tests of one type or another, and he lists a few. Um, so, so what he does is he looks at who I was then in the banking world, you know, circa 2009, and looks at my, my personality and, and my disposition and how, you know, I devoted all these hours, you know, from like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. And, you know, I was so busy. I didn't have time for anybody. I was self-absorbed. And it was all about work. And if you had met me then, I wouldn't really have had time for you, not you personally, but just, you know, capital you people, um, because it was all about work. And I was self-absorbed and, you know, I was just busy and I was climbing a corporate ladder. But the person in, two, in 2019 um, is a person who would, who you talk to and hear a lot more about the state of the planet, how glaciers are melting, you know, human potential and how people have a capacity to change and take responsibility for the planet. And he says the reason for the transformation is more around the difficulty, pain, and frustration that pushed me outside my comfort zone that I experienced in mountaineering. So it's not like I became... So a, it wasn't a happenstance. This no. came incre incrementally over time, and you became... You, you more, you more or less created yourself. You didn't became yourself randomly. It was a creation, as yeah. far as I in interpret... Correct, because I think in, in the opening scene, he has me like in Karsten's pyramid having a meltdown. And I'm having the meltdown in the jungle. Like, you know, I'm just, I've got Wellington boots on, it, the, the mud's over my knees. I can't get, I can't pick my legs up. I'm hitting my head on the trees. I can't look up. I can't look down. It's like 100 degrees. Um, you know, it's mosquito infested. And, you know, I've just never been in an environment like that. And I, I, I can't figure out what, what I can do right. And I remember this scene because I had to throw out like a whole roll of GoPro, which was just profanity. I, I'm just swearing on the whole thing. It's just a whole slew of profanity. Some people call it a breakthrough and not a breakdown. Yeah, it could be a breakthrough, but you know, it but it was one of several, one of probably many moments and many different encounters, but it's like when you put yourself in a situation that's just so grim and you're you're pushing like so outside your comfort zone and you're like, you know, why can't I get a handle on this? What's wrong? You know, and you're it, it, there's so much it it's really it's it's almost like the triangulation of um Something that's difficult, painful, and, and the frustration is so important. It's got to be frustrating. Because if you're a type A person, you know, things are supposed to come easy to you. Right? So they say. So they say. And, and here, I'm, it's not coming easy. And I'm ex extremely frustrated that it's not coming easy. Because I remember, like, you know, pulling my legs so 
far out of the mud that when I finally get a grip and I smack my head on an overhanging tree, you know, I just can't win. I can't win between the height and the depth. You know, I'm just losing at all, at all angles. And, and also my, my gait, because I'm short, some of the steps I had to step over the logs were just more than I could step. They were more than my five foot four legs could handle. And it was just shit, actually. But anyway, it was it, that's like the scene. And he's he's he says, like, when you have enough of those kind of moments, it really does transform you into, you know, somebody who over time. And, and if you if you look at me, I've traded a life that was predictable and consistent for one that was more open and adaptable and fluid. And. Now it was, you know, that was like a great scene, of course, because you're you're really in a jungle. I mean, more jungle than jungle could ever be, um, you know. But you know, if if you take all all of these different scenarios and you put them all together and you say, okay, well, probably for 295 days I lived somewhere on a mountain. Um, you know, I would have experienced living outside for a year in different environments in different countries. And really had to adapt to, you know, what those surroundings were. And that and that broke my that broke the spine of my back of my ego. And when you crack an ego open, you know, new things can form. But you have mm. to do that. You have to do that. Would you say that now you're more of a friend of a certainty and um, adversity and the unknown than you used to? Yeah, I I, I can definitely handle like so it's not that I'm not goal oriented and, and really trying to find purpose, but I don't need to know exactly what that is. Um, you know, I, I will still think big and want to want to get involved in projects, but I, I'm okay with the uncertainty. I'm okay with being open and adaptable and I'm probably a nicer person. Let's look in the back mirror and go back 10 years because I'd like to understand inception of, this adventurous propensity of yours. And uh, you met a friend at a lunch and this came in a joking manner where the friend of yours made an admonition and an injunction where she said that, why not try Everest? And uh, you apparently jumped on the idea and you realized it. Uh, and what do you think would have become of you if you hadn't taken that challenge that day? Okay, so I, I do remember this because I've, I've written about it in the, in my new memoir, um, which is to the greatest heights. But you know, I, I was playing with with sort of three things back then. Um, but you you sort of have to think about Hong Kong back in two thousand and nine, ten, and moving there from London. So I didn't speak the language. Um, and I was surrounded by tall buildings and big hills and, and human slide walks, I called them, and interconnected malls, right? So, you know, it's very, very different. It's a different environment. And this is, this is um, let's say, 2009. So what is it, 12 years since the handover in 1997, roughly? So there was still some Britishness, like you could still have afternoon tea. 
Um, it's not like it is now, uh, Hong Kong. It, it was still a little more British. Um, but I also found a lot of Chinese values there. In other words, what I found about the Chinese is that the Chinese valued money, power, and wealth. And it, judgment-free zone, um, they were willing to work hard for it. So there was nothing wrong with that. It was just, that's what I found that they value. So they put in long hours. And one of the things that came with that was what happened after work? Well, after work, people would go, you know, let's say to the bars, you know, there'd be um, social uh, sides, but the social sides were all around networking. And for that side of, of the Hong Kong Chinese, it was, um, who are you and what can you do for me? And that side of it was more what reminded me of like the film American Psycho, like with the business cards. Okay, so here's my business card, double embossed, whatever, you know, some some font. And cor correctly, and and so, but this was like the first time I wasn't working, so I couldn't meet that with the with a business card. And so I was trying to identify um, myself not with a business card, but just who I was, but not by what was on a piece of plastic or you know um, linen or whatever cotton. So it was kind of an awakening for me uh, to not be described by a business card. And so that's when I started coming up with, you know, what are, how can I um, define what I do next? Like, you know, I, I have to have something to do, not just because I'm a type A person, but I, I can't just be a lady of leisure that doesn't really work for me. And so when I started trying to come up with like, you know, sort of parameters of things that I could do next, they were roughly like, okay, well, whatever I do next, I should be able to measure success. It should take two to three years. Um, I, it should have a goal and uh, not be financial because we're in a recession and uh, finance is doing bad. And, you know, there were things like that. And so two of those things, which is where my path could have led if the friend didn't say Everest, I was looking at, um, I had always, uh, I had always loved um, skincare. And so I was looking at um, what if I did a product line with some of the fruits of Asia, which have antioxidants. With the hand on our hearts, mountaineers aren't very good at taking care of their skin. No, and, and it's partially because, look, if it's between hanging on that rope or taking out like, you know, some cream for your face, you're going to go for the rope every time. That's great. Myself <laughs> included. So you decided for Everest, but what exactly, at what point did you make that decision? What happened? What was going around in your head? Because I guess there must have been some trepidation, second thoughts, or perhaps even looking over the shoulder, what are people going to say? I was a city girl uh, in the eyes of my friends, you know, London or Hong Kong. So they didn't see me necessarily as somebody who spent time outside. Also, I, I was terrified of insects, you know, and that, um, you know, what they didn't understand was that nothing lived at high altitude. So I was completely safe. <laughs> that, that was always going to be my secret. 
Um, High altitude, no problems, avalanches, yeah. bad weather, but the insects, yeah. as long as you don't have the insects, I get yeah, it. Yeah, correct. <laughs> and actually that wasn't 100% true because there were spiders at Choyo Base Camp, but never mind. Um, you know, there was, um, you know, so that there were some things that worked in my favor, you know, I, I, and actually there was a mountain vole that came into my tent one time at base camp, but for the most part, nothing lived um, at high altitude. So I was safe. Um, the, you know, I think they thought it was just going to be a temporary thing. You know, you get over it or whatever, but some people were judgmental um, because Mountaineers were judgmental. If you succeeded in something right away and it took them a longer time, they were not happy about that. Um, and, but every once in a while, I'll tell you, there was, there was a super cool story. Like uh, once, once, one time somebody who I never met but completely admired pinged me on social media and said, uh, you don't know who I am, but I think your story is incredible. Um, and that was Joe Simpson. And some, and I was just like, Oh my God, how can you think? I don't know who you are. Like you have the most incredible survival story of the century. And I think, you know, whatever, not even century, but just of all time. Um, so some people would be incredibly uh, kind and courageous and cool. And other people would be judgmental and, you know, unkind. Do you think there's a part of jealousy involved in that? What people think of you as well? You know, it, it can be, but I, I, I find it bizarre because I, I don't know why. Um, it would have to take an insecure person to, to feel that way. I can't uh, psychoanalyze that, but somebody, but I have found that the people that, like, uh, you know, like Nazir Sabir, who would come to me and say, I hate crampons on rock. I mean, I just I love I love men who can just be honest and say stuff like that because it's the truth. My God, who wants crampons on rock? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, there, we should have the James Bond of choices to push a button and get rid of that because it's all times today. Right. And the noise is. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. You know, I mean. <laughs> You know, that's just honesty and or, or people that say, oh, you shouldn't climb with Sherpas. It's like, my God, are you kidding? You know, Edmund Hillary climbed with the Sherpa. I climb with the Sherpa because none of my friends climb. None of my girlfriends climb. You know, none of my male friends climb. That's not those. Those aren't my mates. You know, so. It's very hard to find proper people with the right competency on match.com that fits that kind of a profile too so, so i guess that as long as you are honest with uh, how you climb and uh, don't do any exaggerations well then people um, shouldn't have any problem with that everyone has sherpa on their team and yet you know if i turn around with sherpa on my team they they hold me up a mountain it's hilarious so it, you know, it is what it is, but, um, you know, you're part British, part American. Would you say that you're more British than American? Because I can hear a cup of tea. Oh, it is. is that a cup of tea or is that actually a cup of coffee? No, that's tea. <laughs> Sorry about that. You get sound effects. 
after all the expeditions that you've been on, uh, are you aren't you tired of tea? Do you know, it's funny. I um, no, I, I I'm not. It's funny. Uh, it, if anything, it's green tea, of course, in Pakistan. So you know, to have black tea back in England, you know, you get you get different teas. So I, I can never um, you know run out of choice. Something that I wonder about is that you came from the banking world and you left it. You can always go back. Did the fact that you could always go back act as a safety net in case your mountaineering aspiration would go up in flames? Uh, I would say absolutely. Depending on who I'm speaking to, I like to use that example about people making tough decisions in their life. So risk management is not a topic that people go around talking about because it's a foreign term unless you're talking in a business sense. But the reality is we make decisions every day along a risk continuum. So should I run across the street now uh, before that car comes? That's, that's risk. Do I make that last phone call today? You know, maybe I'll uh, get that, get that something that I want or something done. Do I pop over to the shop before they run out of milk? You know, these are all, you know, little risk equations. So what's interesting is when I talk about like that safety net, it's really invisible, but I always like people to know that they have it because so many people remain trapped in their life and they don't, they get stuck. They get stuck in like shitty jobs that they don't like and terrible relationships that don't, that no longer serve them. And they don't really realize that they can get up and go. Um, and what I've always liked them to think about is that they, the skills and knowledge and experience that they have acquired in life throughout their entire life, everything that they've ever done is theirs and no one can take it away from them. So surprise, it's yours. It's there to keep. No one can take it away. So if you pivot, you know, left, right, just move from your current position, you have a data point. Once you have the data point, you know whether you like it more than where you were or less than where you were. And that tells you whether to stay or move again. And you can always go back. So if you don't like the relationship, the job, whatever it is, you know, pivot, make a move. You can always go back, but you don't know if you don't move. I agree totally. But here's the difficult part, because here's a contradiction from famous Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I think you heard this interview before. And he solely states that he hates plan B, that it reduces the focus from the main goal. What's your take on this? I love Arnold. I think he's awesome. I follow him on Twitter. He's funny as hell. But, and I love the sentiment. I would only say I want to know when he's making that statement because it's a bit like putting all your eggs in one basket. If you're in the middle of something and the eggs are in the basket, then he's right. Okay, let's take an example that we can relate to. Let's say it's January 2020 of this year, and you want to go to K2 in June, right? K2 is one of the many mountains on your list. It's your priority at the moment. Suddenly, let's, let's pretend a global pandemic hits. I know, sounds like I'm making it up, right? You should be flexible with plan B, right? 
because then you go to the fall and there's Manaslu, Choyoyu, Maklu, Shishapangma. You could do other things in the fall because if you were only looking at uh, K2 and they close it off in the summer and you don't have a plan B, you miss out for the whole year. However, if you were on K2 in June and there was no global pandemic and you're looking at the shit weather hitting every single day, which it does do every single day, and you're wavering and you start looking at Broad Peak, then you will never summit K2. And he's right. No plan B if you're on K2. If you're in it. Yeah, so I'm saying he's right if you're in it. He's wrong if you're not in it. Do you see the difference? I think that is profound. And I think that applies to my sentiment as well. And uh, that's how I judge these different situations and scenarios. I always promulgate that watch your steps, but every now and then lift your cheeks and lift your eyes to be reminded where you are going and why. I'd like to go back to the banking world. And uh, here's an interesting philosophical question. Uh, I don't want to end up as a promoter for recruiting bankers to become full-time explorers here, but let's imagine for a while that I do. What do you think would happen if more bankers did go out and took physical risks? Witness breathtaking panoramas in sub-zero temperatures and oxygen-deprived jagged peaks. Uh, what do you think would happen to uh, the planet, for instance, if these people went out there? Not only bankers, but people in general. So I think it's hard to stereotype. I see the cues on Everest. I don't like them either. Um, and while I would never want to stop somebody from fulfilling their dreams of climbing Everest and you know, having an attempt at the summit, I do caution uh, that everyone who, who does attempt it train hard and at least attempt one other 8,000 meter peak first. So by the time I climbed Everest, I climbed two other 8,000 meter peaks before I summited Everest. Now, you know, I, I don't actually know where Nepal ended up because it was going back and forth on their final rulings, but it seems like a combination of inexperienced climbers and inexperienced operators, you know, resulted in chaos. And you can imagine a combination of those two is, is ultimately deadly, right? Um, I, I think that we do need advocates for climate change, um, but banker is also a generic term, and that doesn't imply extreme wealth. Um, you know, the, that person with that label isn't going to be the one to reduce carbon emissions to two degrees, you know, or stand up in Glasgow, you know, next time around. Um, I'm not sure this person's going to make a dent in any green industry. And I'm not sure that recruiting bankers is a positive thing to raise money for environmental concerns. Um, so I don't know that that as a, as, as, a, as a promoter solves any problem in particular. Um, but I will say in general that anybody who experiences mountains or understands them or sees uh, the devastation or understands the statistics uh, does have their eyes opened and knowledge is a good thing. So that's probably the best way I can sum that. So if anybody who's seen the, the data <clears throat> um, from uh, uh, issue mode about the uh, third of the glaciers has already melted, you can only care about the, the second third, you know, that's very powerful. 
that pretty much tells you right there that, um, you know, no point crying over spilt milk. It's um, that first third is gone. You can only care about the second third. And when you put it in terms like that, it's like, oh, you know, it just it hits you, you know, right in the gut. And, you know, we can we can marvel at them and, and think about the, the beauty. But unless we want them all to, to lose, you know, the snow caps and, and by the way, all that all the glaciers that melt will end up feeding, you know, the glaciers and streams and headwaters of all those rivers. And we will end up with some floods. You know, there's, there's repercussions for that. Um, you know, we've got to think about that, too. Um, you know, problems will come down the line from that as well. But but ba- targeting bankers, I, I don't know. I don't know that anything good comes of that per se. You lack the skill set for surviving in some of the most hostile and extreme places on Earth, climbing competence, etc. And your approach was, which I love, I can go and learn that. But I'd like to know, how was that skills? How did you acquire these skill sets? Did you set a time-limited goal of two years or one to two years? Did you go to a school? Did you go to uh, guides and learn these skill sets? Or how was your strategy? Uh, okay, so so basically, I, I saw climbing as a skill, and, and the skill is something that can be learned and therefore taught. So... Um, I think that's that's probably a little bit different when I talk to other people. They don't necessarily look at it like that. And I think that's a refreshing way to look at it. So I wasn't, although I had, I did not know how to climb when climb, when the subject of climbing came up, it wasn't the first thing that hit me was not, Oh no, I can't do this. I don't know how, um, because of the business background, I approached it very analytically and said, Ah, climbing. What is climbing? Climbing is a skill, and a skill can be uh, learned and therefore taught. That was the, that was like just my you know left brain analysis of the situation. Um, then I went into something a little softer, which was I didn't know whether I'd be any good at it or like it. And even those have different dimensions of protection. You know, good at it is you know whether I'd be good or, or you know, not good um, and like it or not like it. <clears throat> but it, I also realized over time that it takes practice. And if you live in a city, you know, you can't, uh, you can't really go on an indoor climbing wall and pretend that's outdoor climbing. Those, those are completely different. Um, and in fact, like even when I started, when I realized that more, especially on, on, high altitude climbs, they were more mixed climbs in the end because of climate change. I had wanted more and more practice of crampon on rock. And I finally found some individuals to train with in Canada and in Colorado. And I would specifically ask them to take me where I could go for crampon on rock. And it was hard because I would be damaging, you know, the mountains. And, you know, this wasn't a particular nice thing that they wanted to do. They didn't want to go, you know, scratch up a bunch of, you know, living rock, you know, so to speak, <laughs> you know, but there was occasionally places I could go off the beaten track and, and do that. But I wanted to practice for House's Chimney. I wanted to practice for other other bits of technical places where 
you know, I wouldn't just be experiencing it for the first time because normally when you climb rock, you're not in crampons. So, but anyway, so the first time I ever put on a helmet, a harness, boots, um, crampons, anything like that was in New Zealand with Mark Sedan. Um, and I have a chapter about that in the book, um, the memoir that I wrote called To the Greatest Heights. It's been postponed because of COVID. So it'll now be re uh, released in March 2021. But I've given him a very, very heavy accent, which is funny because he does not have an accent like that. But I gave him one, which is which is funny. Um, but he was relentless because he made me practice over and over and over and over again, up and down the ice, up and down the ice, feet splaying, more horizontal, the more vertical the ice. Um, French technique, front pointing, you know, how not to front point to burn out your calves, you know, that kind of thing. Um, we stayed in huts, you know, moving up on the ice, uh, short roping, rappelling, um, and we even had like a fun reconnaissance descent where, you know, he, he got a little lost, um, which I found really cool because I always found when, when the guides didn't know what, where they were, that was the most fun for me. <laughs> because, you know, you got to, you got to really see them apply their skill. And, um, and then they were always a little extra nervous, which I always love to see the psychological aspects of that. So, yeah, but that was that was it. Um, but but I later I would learn that the business skills w were not enough. And the business skills you're referring to there are leadership, strategy, yeah. risk management, ability. Yeah, any of those things that, that that you could have all the business skills in the world, but you still needed technical skills, and you still you still had to honor um, Mother Nature and have uh, patience and realize that you will not always be in control. So how useful has these business skills been in the mountaineering arena for yeah, you? Yeah, so they, they've been, um, the, the business skills have been very helpful. Like, so, so I, took the, I took those three, the famous ones from Jack Welsh, you know, speed, simplicity, and self-confidence. And those were Jack Welsh's famous, like, you know, big three. And I couldn't even read his books because this was so ingrained, you know, where we worked. But if you think about it, like, you know, speed on a mountain is very important because as Mesner always said, mountains aren't fair or unfair. They're just dangerous. Right. So it's nothing personal, but there's hazards, crevasses, avalanches, you know, changing weather patterns, technical climbing sections. You know, you have to get the hell out. Um, you have to climb with efficiency. So you don't want to go too fast where you make mistakes, but you want to do it with purpose. And so, you know, there is an element of speed because speed is your friend, because you just don't know how it's going to change. And change is just always in the air. It's with wind, it's uh, sun, sun melts. When, when you have melting snow and ice, that's dangerous. So speed is, speed is your friend. Now, is there ever times when you want to go slow? Sure. When you're doing heart surgery, it's probably a good, good time to go slow. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, the other one was simplicity. You know, if I give you a complicated set of instructions, are you happier than a simpler one? Probably not. Uh, also, when you have different cultures, different languages, you know, you want to you want to be simple. Simple is always better. Always. Uh, self confidence. I think people need self confidence. I'd rather have somebody be self confidently wrong than. Do, do you understand what I'm about to say? <laughs> Yes. I get your point. <laughs> Just have the self-confidence 
you know, I, I don't even care if you're wrong, but, but be self-confident um, because. And hopefully that, that person will understand that he or she was wrong in the first place and can change. Yes. It, you know, but the, but the point is like, if you lack the self-confidence, then you, you, you won't have enough um, self-confidence probably to even change your opinion. You know, you'll be too insecure to, to change mm -hmm. that. But it's it's important and and self confidence you know uh, part of it comes with experience you know part of it comes with um, you know uh, making mistakes it's it's good to make mistakes if you learn from them um, but it's it's an important thing uh, to do for sure and you know but I would say you know what the mountain taught me that that business did not teach me was patience I was not a patient person the mountain taught me patience. And um, it also taught me that I was not in control. Um, and business teaches you at all times that you must be in control. And the mountain tells you that indeed the mountain, uh, Gaia, you know, Mother Nature is in control. And you are going to have a much easier time if you understand that. If you try to control everything, you are you're going to be a, a miserable person. So if you would go back to the banking world today, with these virtues that mountaineering has taught you and all the experience you have firsthand, would that make you a better banker, you think? Uh, probably not, um, because I I don't think I could put up with um, probably some of the bureaucracy or some of the... Um, uh, you know, I, I think in the business world, even when I just you know, listen to my partner or something like that on the phone, you know, he puts up with, a, you know, a lot of business, you know, a lot of meetings, uh, a lot of indecision, a lot of, you know, times he's sitting there and nobody's making decisions, a lot of, you know, I'll call it bureaucracy for lack of a better word, but I, you know, on a mountain, you can't, you can't, that can't happen. If, if, if you try to superimpose a, uh, you know, a business model on a mountain model, there are no summits. Businesses will not summit because you can't have, you know, a bunch of people just, uh, you know, discussing stuff in perpetuity. You, you've got to make decisions and you've got to go forward as a team. Um, I, I see a lot of people just, you know, uh, sitting there discussing stuff in perpetuity, but they're, they don't have clear goals and objectives. They're not operating as a team. They, you know, they're not aligned. And and that's 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 um, I, I just don't see summits. Do you think that is that disparity is frustrating for a lot of people, and that in fact makes them bail? So what I see on the mountain is I see um, it, it's it's the opposite on the mountain. Funny enough, what I see on the mountain is I see fear spreading. So what happens is you know. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll hear like, oh, the, you know, there's there's no chance. The weather looks horrible. And um, and then it'll it'll spread from one camp to the other. No weather window, no weather window. Um, and then, you know, somebody will start coughing and, uh, you know, um, you know, in their head, they'll start looking at their, you know, what they're missing back home. And it'll be like, oh, but so and so's birthday is coming up. And, you know, but so and so's birthday was always coming up. Right. You were always going to be gone. 
but suddenly like you know they're they're feeling worse and uh, they want to go home and they're getting homesick and and they're manufacturing in their head this downward spiraling uh you know situation where there's never going to be a weather window they're missing stuff at home and now they're getting more sick and they want to go home but there are no doors on tents so they can always go home but they lose focus they lose focus on the summit they lose focus on the goal and when that fear starts to spread it's like wildfire you can't put it out um and if I if I could and I had my way, I I wouldn't even allow the teams to, you know, talk to each other because I can't stop the fear from spreading. But what I would rather do is is have the games, have the movies, you know, have the card games, you know, and keep everybody focused on the summit and and not all the not all the negative news because it the the mind it looks for reasons to fail. Not reasons to succeed. Um, it, because it, it's it's easier to it's like it's like that little angel and little devil on the shoulder. You know that the, the the little devil's just uh, he uh, he or she uh, is is just a little bit more convincing because um, it takes less work and it's the path of least, least resistance. It takes more work to succeed, in this case, to go up. You say that people often get their wows for the wrong reason when they congratulate you for being the fastest woman to complete the seven summits and all the other amazing achievements that you've done. What do you mean with this? Usually that there's a backstory, um, and some people don't see the backstories. So, um, you know, and and... So, like, you know, one example is, um, you know, uh, take like take the uh, Guinness World Record for the fastest woman to climb the seven summits. You know that I didn't know that there was a Guinness World Record. And that's what's actually the funniest bit about the wow is I didn't know about it until I was trying to fill 400 explorer names for the United Nations and looking up 400 names. And so I was Googling, you know, my husband was Googling and we were trying to put replace the country names at ECOSOC chambers at the United Nations. And if you think about it, like you could probably come up with 50, but when you get to like 400, you're like, oh, I need names. And, and, you know, we were Googling and, and my husband found that I had had the Guinness World Record. We didn't know it. And that's like, to me, what makes it funny. It's like, you know, it's like shit, you know, they, so you weren't actually dedicating to set the world record in the first well, place. No, it just happened so, to be so. So I, I had been made aware that if I had climbed Kilimanjaro twice, I would be eligible for it. So I did do that, but but they were just really bad at communicating and didn't confirm, you know, or tell me about it. So I never knew, and that's how I found out. So it was. And this is in the book, and it's kind of funny, but there's so many things like that. Like, you know, when I did K2, it should have been like an awesome moment. Like, okay, you know, here's here's a good, you know, story, this, you know, uh, you know American and British woman. But no, Outside Magazine, you know, does their first profile on me, but not about like this amazing woman. They do one about like a 52-year-old who has a bunch of injuries, right? You know, a slight a slightly backhanded slap, right? 
But that leads to Simon and Schuster, like, you know, finding me and leading to the book. So, you know, in a, in a funny round rounded way, like it was a shit story from my perspective versus what they should have written, but it led to something good anyway. And there's even like a backstory about, um, you know, Challenger Deep, you know, with the guardian angel and stuff like that. So there's, there's like to, the backstories that end up happening to me, I think are always more funnier and more of a wow than what actually ends up happening to me, even though those end up as a headline. Now let's talk about some inspirational sources. You've uh, said that there are two people in particular that made a great impact on you, and that's Wanda Ruchkiewicz from Lithuania. And she became the first woman to summit K2 without supplemental oxygen. And uh, another person is the Japanese woman, Juku yeah. Tabei. Why these amazing, well, they are amazing in their own right, but uh, in what way have they inspired you so much? Yeah, so, it's, you know, first I, I love them because, you know, at, at least Google gave them both doodles, you know, which I thought was awesome. You know, so if you look at the Google doodles, and this is where you go into a search engine, and they both had their very own uh, little doodle. So on, on a certain day, an anniversary of their climb, you would have seen just an animation of them, um, which I think I still have on my website somewhere. Um, I, I took copies of their doodles. But uh, so starting with uh, Junko, you know, she she finished climbing her seven summits at the age of 52, which is w where I finished uh, K2. So she finished uh, what one would have considered late, you know, in life. Um, she's also very short. She's only four foot nine. And I always believe that short climbers uh, don't get an advantage because, you know, you're taking two steps for every other person's one step. Your gait is short. And also you just don't get the same handholds. You're always having to find other ones. Um, she was also born in 1939, which is really early. So she would have climbed Everest in the 70s. You know, that's like Bonington years. And frankly, you know, there weren't a lot of women climbing in those uh, that time. So she would have broke norms in society uh, like Jap Japan and a Japanese culture and for a woman. Wanda's a little different. So Wanda, um, you know, uh, she 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 summited K2 not in uh, 88 but in 86. And if you look at the year 86, I mean that is a really recent year. Song of the year for 86 was Rock Me Amadeus. Um, film of the year was Top Gun. So these don't sound like they're a million years a million years ago. You know these these are things that happened frequent you know not frequently but not so long ago. Chernobyl happened in 1986. Um, space shuttle Challenger blew up because of the O-ring in 1986. And I think I would have liked to meet Wanda for a couple of reasons, and I can relate to her. She had Polish her heritage. My father's side is Polish. Uh, she lost her brother when they were young. I lost my brother when he was young. And um, she led, you know, all women teams, which, you know, I always admired um, from her. Um, and she succeeded on K2 on her third attempt, and it took me uh, three attempts, too, on K2. So 
I, I see a lot of parallels with her on, on her story. And also there's a great story. I don't know if you've ever heard this about Wanda, but um, before she went to K2, I believe on her first, uh, her first time, um, there's a story about a teenage boy that rings her apartment's door and he gives her a bouquet of flowers and a wrapped gift. And then he leaves. And inside the box, there's 100,000 uh, zloty, the, the Polish money. And there's a note. And the note says, use this money for your next mountain venture. Um, and may it be in such good style as Mount Everest. So in the 80s, that was a huge amount of money. And it allowed her to finance the entire expedition to K2, which was a women's only expedition. So I just think I love that story. You know, I love the fact that, you know, somebody just sent, you know, 100,000, you know, of cash even. You know what I mean? And and was anonymous. Anonymous. Yeah. And no one ever found out who that person was. Wow. It almost feels like magic. But I I love that. I love that story. And, um, you know, it, it, it goes to show that there's, you know, that there are sort of magical, you know, moments, you know, and I, I, I just, I think that's amazing. So really, I think both women were, were phenomenal and, um, you know, pioneers and, um, you know, uh, contributed greatly to, to mountaineering. So are there too few women in adventure sports? So it's interesting. I think first you have to define adventure sports, um, you know, team oriented versus solo action sports, extreme sports, adventure sports. There's so many terms that get kicked around. I, I no longer know what that means, um, except that I, I guess uh, activities will probably involve a high degree of risk. So I, I tried to sort of Google that and um at least under extreme sports, it seems to involve speed, height, a high degree of physical exertion, or highly specialized gear. So how's that? Um, and luckily, mountaineering was listed. So um, usually we're completely forgotten. Um, and uh, I'd say that's at least a good thing. Um, it doesn't really help uh, women... Uh, because I think extreme sports or adventure sports, you know, it's still highly underfunded. And as long as it's highly underfunded, you're, you're not going to get uh, people uh, uh, to participate in these events. Because um, I, th- I think they're amazing events um, to, to showcase because very rarely can you ever get a brand, you know, um, to the top of a mountain with these types of, um, you know, human elements, you know, working hard, um, you know, all the effort that goes into preparing and, you know, training, you know, so it's not even the effort of, of getting something to the top, but all of the, everything that goes into preparing for that and training for that, um, you know, there's only a, a few times, you know, that, that somebody can do that um, and put a brand there, for example, but brands shy away from risk and they definitely shy away from um, having a brand associated with death. And they would just, it doesn't matter how little the ask is at that point, they don't want 
to be associated with it. And, you know, if I think about Uli Steck, you know, Uli Steck had a financial brand associated when he was on Everest last. And, you know, I, I was so happy to see that, uh, that I think it was a private bank, you know, had finally stood up and supported him. And, you know, nobody will remember that name of that private bank. And they, you know, I think if any, any, if anything, people would applaud the fact that, you know, sponsors stuck with him at the end. So I, I would just only like to say that, you know, of course the brands can, you know, have whatever they want contractually to say that, you know, no family or the individual is not going to come after them, but more importantly, you know, how much people appreciate when you, when you are with, with the, you know, with the individual. I'd like to touch on something that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Um, one of your earlier experiences was that you were facing the death of your brother who died in a boating accident. Uh, my sincere condolences is um, I've also experienced this unfathomable type of thing in my family where my sister died from anorexia uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, what happened to you after this moment in your life? Yeah, sure. Well, he he was um, uh, he was probably uh, fourteen years old, something like that. He was swimming from one sailboat to another sailboat um, when he noticed a powerboat coming between the two sailboats. Um, he was a really good swimmer, so um, and and a lot of this I'm deriving from you know, many police reports written afterwards, but he decided to dive for it under the water. Um, I think he probably thought he couldn't go back and he couldn't go forward. So he, he went under the water. Um, so both people on the sailboat started yelling at the driver of the boat to stop. Um, but it turned out the driver and the passenger had been drinking and didn't really notice the kids yelling. So um, the body got caught in the engine and shut off. And I think uh, the driver, according to the testimonies, thought he hit like driftwood or something like that. Um, but when they went around and looked, you know, they saw blood. And I think one might have pulled the body up and saw an open chest wound and, and dropped him, dropped the body. So it was lost for about three days and search boats and nets dragged for it, but it um, washed up on the rocks, I think, three days later. So the, the result of that is, is I think, um, it upsets the natural order of things. And so, um, and what I mean by that is, is you know, people expect, um, you know, grandparents to die before parents and um, parents to die before children. So when that doesn't happen, um, you know, it can be very upsetting. And I had very, very young parents. So my parents were, you know, probably 18, you know, when they had kids. So it was a little bit like kids having kids and they couldn't really, you know, um, you know, get over like the death of the son type of thing. So they divorced and, um, you know, moved out of the house because it just reminded them of, of my brother and, you know, left, left me in the house, um, for the rest of high school. And, you know, I think if I remember correctly, you know, my father would come and pick up bills and stuff like that and drop off some like money and, you know, 
um, you know, I, I was taken care of and that I had a roof over my head, but I, you know, my, my friends became my nuclear family and stuff like that. So I was, I was a little bit estranged from my parents, but they provided, you know, food, clothing and shelter, that kind of thing. I can't imagine. Uh, I can't imagine what you've been going through. Um, but would you say that that defined part of who Vanessa is today? Probably because, you know, I think, you know, um, oh God, who's, who's the, who's the guy who always says it's never too late to have a happy childhood or whatever. I mean, you, you know, <laughs> I, I can't not have had that experience. So, you know, it's normal for me, but it's, I know it's not normal at large. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely had more responsibility, um, than, than other people did, but, but I, it, but that is normal for me. And, um, but, but it also, it, it was interesting because I did have, there was a fork in the road where I could completely mess up my life or, or not mess it up. And, you know, it was interesting to, to, to know, like, when no one's watching, who are you when no one's watching? You know, because, you know, when you're, you know, 15 years old, it's like you, you have your, your first, um, you know, drink and you have your first, uh, you know, you know, whatever, whatever drugs or, you know, and, and the point is, it's like, you know, that's the time when you could start something that, that could be really detrimental and end up where you don't want to go. Or you could go just enough to where you can come back or, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, but there isn't going to be anybody to save you. And I think I was always conscious of, you know, that, that it's, that it's all on me. And, and maybe not, you know, so back to that safety net, you know, I, I hadn't quite had all the knowledge, skills, and experience yet that could really help me yet. So I, I really felt like things that I do would have would have bigger, you know, longer, bigger, lasting percussions. Not even like today, because there wasn't social media. It's not like we had camera, you know, there wasn't iPhones with cameras. But, you know, if you think about it, you know, I, I could have, I could have, you know, um, had really bad grades or dropped out of school or, you know, um, I, you know, I don't know, you know, there were certainly lots of, lots of drugs and other things. I, you know, I just probably never liked a drug more enough to do more than once or twice type of thing. If you could rate your level of happiness today, with a life pursuing your adventurous spirit, let's say from one to 10, where 10 is nirvana, uh, what rating would you give yourself? So today, uh, probably a nine, just because I'm a perfectionist. And, <laughs> and I always figured there's, there's something else that would make it a 10. So I'm, I'm going to hold that 10 out there as, um, you know, uh, there's got to be something else, like, as yet undiscovered. Um, and what would what what kind of rating would you give yourself prior your adventurous career when you were in the banking world? Probably a five because it was just such an awful treadmill. 
you know, you were never really ever done or fulfilled or, you know, you never got that sense of accomplishment. And maybe that's the difference is, you know, at least now, you know, you can say, okay, wow, okay, you know, something's been completed and you can say, you know, I feel great because I was able to do X. And by the way, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a summit, you know, each of those three years on K2, if I hadn't failed on the two previous years, I would have never developed a pre an appreciation for Pakistan, for example. So, you know, part of the failure of Pakistan was an inverse relationship with, you know, developing a love and appreciation of the country of Pakistan. And that would never have happened if I went in immediately and summited K2. Owl has been a mediator who say that Mount Everest is not one's ultimate key to finding happiness. Uh, and that such fixation indeed jeopardizes sound judgments and not to forget, put others in unnecessary risks. At the same time, I think one must balance this with being very committed and resolute. How do you find such balance between committing, but also being happy and on the safe side? Um, I, I think that's fair because um, when I first went to Everest, I was definitely not prepared. Um, you know, I, I I signed up for Camp Two, which I think is just a stupid offering. Sounds like an insult. <laughs> yeah. You know, because the way they sell Everest is is like base camp, Camp Two, and and summit, and. You know, the problem is, is if you look at it just from a, um, what is it like, you know, just an altitude equation, you know, and let's say you climb Kilimanjaro, well, you know, Kilimanjaro is higher than Everest Base Camp. So, and Everest Base Camp is just a trek. You're not on the ice or snow or anything. So you're tempted to go higher, as I was. I climbed Kilimanjaro. I wanted to go to Camp 2. But the problem is the first thing out of base camp is that Kumbu Icefall. That's no place, right, um, to, to have people who don't know what they're doing. Um, and unless you really know Everest well, you, you can't really get a, an appreciation and understanding for that. Um, and I fell right into that trap, you know. I'm only going, you know, whatever, a thousand feet higher, you know, I've been higher, I know this, I know that, whatever. It's just, it, it's it's a stupid thing. So, you know, I think if, if you want to go to Everest, you, you have to be prepared. Um, you know, um, you got to be strong. You got to know about high altitude. Um, the most important thing is start, if you want to climb Everest, start slowly, build confidence. Start hiking, take in summits, go to the Alps in the winter, go in the summer, go to Scotland, then try an 8,000-meter peak. And if you still like it, then try Everest. That's what I recommend. Um, you know, like I said, I don't want to take Everest away from anybody. Um, you could also try, you know, uh, well, I don't want to say that. I was going to say you could try the North Face, but that's not, um, let's not give China a plug. Let's just keep it in Nepal. But, you know, but just do it when you're ready. Make sure you do an 8,000 meter peak so you understand what altitude is because it's a totally different 
uh, experience and you have to understand what your body does at altitude and what it feels like and then and then go but you know you don't want to go uh, you know I don't think you want to go for base camp and you don't want to go to camp two and do stupid stuff you want to you want to go when you're ready there are plenty of lessons that have taught me to persevere and handle adversities uh, and uh, one metaphor i'm often reminded about uh, when i'm struggling on eight thousand meter peaks is that there might be a hundred reasons to turn around but sometimes only one to continue and apply to mountaineering that reason could be as simple as the view when i get a little bit higher up if there are a hundred reasons for you to turn around and none of them are of any safety concerns what is the reason that keeps you pushing and continuing upwards and onwards? So that's a great question because there are going to be, you know, a million reasons to turn around and you're going to have that negative voice that comes in that tells you, you, you know, you've been higher, you're hungry, you're tired, you're thirsty, you know, turn around, turn around, and you're going to have to get rid of that negative voice. Um, so first, I think the best thing that I do is to climb for myself. Um, and I don't want to let myself down. And I've told myself before that I can, and I will do this. So now it's time that I, that I'm going to deliver. So the first thing is that I'm the customer and that's important. Um, I remember reading once, um, a profound statement from a child actor who said, never do something for the applause of others. And I really love that because nothing will disappoint you more. So, you know, that's that's sort of the first premise is I've, I've made a promise to myself and I, I want to do that. Um, now, I also don't climb alone. I'm not a soloist. So I know that there's somebody with me who also has, you know, similar, you know, dreams and desires and goals and I know that that person, as long as we're heading in the same direction, also wants to do a similar thing. So I think about, you know, the partner that I have and, you know, that person succeeding. Um, in my backpack will be um, other ancillary customers. You know, these could be national flags or, you know, UN women or other constituents. Somebody else that I want to demonstrate you know, success to. And, um, you know, I think about, you know, uh, almost playing forward, you know, the unveiling of, you know, bringing those things back to them. And so I, I, I try to think about, um, you know, uh, almost like, a, you know, the having having that moment, like anybody who's summited knows what that feels like. So replaying that experience, but also anybody who's summited knows that that's only halfway and that the hardest part is getting down. So, you know, it's just trying to get to that halfway point. And sometimes that's, that's very, very hard. Um, uh, but also, you know, I, I do try sometimes to get into something called the zone and we can talk about that like in a little bit too. There might be some other questions that lead to that, but just trying not to think about exactly where you are um, and make, and that makes it a little bit easier to continue. It's like being in the zone. Suddenly you are 
looking backwards and you're trying to figure out how on earth did I end up here? This verticals just happen so quickly. Uh, you are just being transported somehow miraculously to a different point and you can't recall climbing those steps. Uh, I often get in that kind of zone where uh, it's a little bit as a blur the past minutes. Not that I lose my attentiveness or my focus. It's just that I can't recall because I'm so much absorbed in the now. Uh, is, does this sound weird to you or do you have similar experience? No, uh, definitely a similar experience. Um, in fact, there was um, the first time I ever saw it. There is something called, um, I think, flow is, is, um, is, is a psychological term for it. And it's where you are doing something with hyper-focus. And when you're in this hyper-focus, you, uh, you, you lose complete sense of time. And that's why, you know, like uh, four hours can go by and feel like uh, 15 minutes, let's say. And but the good thing is, in, in addition to losing the sense of time, you're also I think endorphins and things like come come in where you are also feeling less pain. So you, you don't feel like, you know, that hungry, thirsty, cold, all those other things that you would normally feel where you are. Um, so there are people that actually get into that sense of flow. Um, I, I definitely do it. And I didn't realize I did it until I heard somebody speak about it. And, I, and I, then I, I thought, oh, my God, this is exactly what happens. Because how else would I? How else could I possibly stand somewhere for 16 hours in the worst conditions in the world and not be conscious of it? Um, so it's 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 a it's a it's a good thing to have, um, but but I think you you also have to be aware of it because I think it can also you know be damaging if you you know you don't want to flow to your deaths, for example up some words in a video about you where you say that it doesn't matter if you do something the fastest or if you are really being the first as long as it communicates a message to inspire change and this evokes uh, numerous thoughts in my mind firstly what change are we talking about here and secondly does not being the first and fastest give you a unique platform to convey this message to others yeah, so um, th that was that was a campaign. I know I know exactly what video that came from, and I think first of all that was um, more about trying to find um, a purpose beyond a single goal. So, for example, like let's say you know I have a goal, and my goal is um, you know to climb K two, and if or, you know, the fastest to climb the seven summits or whatever my goal is. It could be any goal. The problem with having a single goal is once you meet it, then you come home and you're depressed because you've just met your goal and it's over. And, you know, to create, you know, sort of lasting change and to, to be, you know, sort of bigger than that, 
it's it's really to have a, a, a series, you know, or or something greater, like a sense of a per, a sense of purpose. So, and I think that's what happens is people would come off the mountains a lot of times, and they come home and they they go into this depression, and the depression would be like, you know, well, I don't understand. I just did something, but I'm really depressed. And you know, uh, p- people couldn't really understand like why that would happen. Well, you know. Um, Part of it is because where you are is really intense. So you're always switched on. You're on 100% of the time. You're always looking for something to go wrong. You're looking for an avalanche. You're looking for sounds, sights, smells, something always on. And then suddenly you go home to something that's very serene and simple. And the biggest decision is, you know, what type of cereal to pick in the supermarket, that kind of thing. And, you know, it, you're, you're, it's, it's completely different what you're having to, uh, you know, confront. Um, but also when you go home, you are also in a state of, you know, n- not being, um, having to manage something, um, you know, or, or lead something that, you know, has great stakes attached to it. Whereas purpose, I think is, 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 is a better way to look at it because, you know, our lives don't end at a, at a point in time. It's a continuum. So, you know, basically we, we come off a mountain and we say, okay, that was a great experience. What did I learn from that? What, what can I take away? What can I do better? What would I like to do next? And as you think about some of those things, you add what you've done, you know, and, and take some of those experiences and you look around and you see what's out there and you say, okay. Um, and sometimes it's a bit like, I look at them almost like film sets. Like, you know, sometimes you take other people that you've come across and you recombine them and do different things. Or sometimes they're even different things. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought oceans would come up for me. Um, but it's still climate and the environment. Um, but you you take things that you care about and, and when projects resurface, you put them together and, and then you're off. But they, they might have a common theme. So, so for me that, you know, the, the mountains and the oceans had a climb, a common theme of environmental, you know, mixed with, with climate change. And, but what mattered more was that I continued to change and evolve and have a sense of purpose, not so much, you know, whether I did this, that, or the other. You use a hashtag quote, Oh, your tomorrow. Mm. Um, what are you hoping will happen if people in general dedicate themselves to this mantra? Okay, so so I remember that um, specifically because I was approached for a compa- that campaign and it was called Own Your Tomorrow. And I thought it was interesting because I liked the messaging. I found it um, empowering, you know, Own Your Tomorrow. It, it, you don't really have to say anything else. Um, I also liked the project because it was being produced and filmed by a Dutch storyteller who lived in New York City. And hi, um, hold on one sec. Sorry, we're going to have to do that over. Um, Perfect. Thank you. Um, Actually, the tea just came. (laughs) (laughs) You're always laughing about the tea. Right on time. Uh, I don't have any doubts that you are a fanatic tea drinker. It's very funny because I was like, I hope the door opens so they wouldn't say anything. And here they are, like, you know. Like, <laughs> same procedure as yesterday or uh, yep, exact same a different type of tea? Nope, it's exact same. Exact so, so, same. Yeah, so let me let me start over. But 
Um, I was approached that campaign, Own Your Tomorrow, and I thought it was interesting um, because I liked the messaging. I found it empowering, and I liked the project because it was being produced and filmed by a Dutch storyteller who lived in New York City named Bas Burkhout. And what I liked about him is I had seen some of his material, and he always approached every single subject in a really interesting way and told the stories very differently. So his idea for me was, uh, let's go to the mountains. And the closest mountain we could get to was really New Hampshire, um, which we did. And but he wanted everything. He wanted to go. He wanted to train. He wanted to hang out in the apartment. He wanted to go to the mountains. Like he just wanted to fully like, you know, get into that world. And um, and then he wanted to, you know, kind of talk to me, separate from filming, and do like the voiceovers with the film. So it wasn't necessarily what I was saying, but. You know, he would use the image differently, but ultimately all of his stuff was um, was pretty cool. I liked his artistic ability and look, it was three simple words, but it had one meaning and what was there not to like? That's the way I looked at it. I like it. I think it's uh, the messaging is um, pretty stark and apparent um, goes yeah. without saying, so to speak. Yeah, I wasn't paid for it, but I just I just liked it. It was just material. And at the time, I didn't have a lot of film. So people were always like, oh, show me something. And it was like, okay, you know, it, it gave me material. Well, you used to live in Boston. Yes. And that is not exactly the most mountainous place on earth. And I heard that you ran up and down office buildings to obtain the vertical gains to be fit for your climbs. Now, me in the contrary, I'm spoiled with running up and down with Grandor Vista, where I train in my backyard, which is in the Swedish mountains. And sometimes I go in training camps to Norway and Alps. But what I like to understand is how your training regime looked like from a day-to-day -day basis, basically. And, and I'm particularly interested in your often in your office building workouts. Yeah. And Yep. This is perhaps something that many do not fully understand, but but running up and down office buildings, how do you maintain the spark in motivation hurling up and down dead, boring stairways in a city? Yeah, well, uh, so first, um, you know, why 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 stairs? Because, you know, um, train well, first, training in the city is much harder. There's more excuses, you know, there, there's, you know, kind of more things to um, to take your attention away. Um, you know, you see a cafe or a you know a bookstore or something, you're like, oh, let's go in there. You know, it's like, no, you got to train. And climbing is is simply that you're trying to simulate what you're actually going to be doing. And the problem with rotating stairs that you see in a gym or sliding skis, you know, that you see in a gym is that they're not capturing quite the same momentum as you lifting your leg and having to carry your weight. <laughs> and yeah. you can always be distracted by a 400 TV channels, yeah, which is not the case in 8,000 meter peaks. Yeah. So, you know, I love that they try to simulate it, but the reality is, you know, they, those things are helping you in one way or another, you know, um, carry some of that weight. And I really want to be carrying my own weight. So um, first, before, before Boston was London, and what's really interesting about London is they do have a series of the deepest tube stations and there's, there's two of them really Covent Garden and Hempstead Heath. 
And if you go to Hampstead Heath, which is in Camden, it has 320 steps down. So they built these things, you know, to really, really withstand the bombs. And I used to go up and down Camden, you know, in Hampstead Heath. And it wasn't long before a station manager would like, you know, come on and say, hey, you know, are you training for Everest? <laughs> are you serious? Oh, yeah. And I loved it because he would just go, oh, yeah, you know, I've had lots of those over the years. You know, it was like nothing to these guys. Um, they'd clock you because there'd be nobody mad enough to like, you know, do that like underground in the heat. Um so that would always make me laugh because leave it to the Brits to have a sense of humor and to know exactly what you're up to. Um, but when I came to Boston, it was like, all right, now what am I going to do? You know, there's there's nothing within a radius. But, you know, they did they did start wars. So, you know, the New England soldiers certainly fought the British Army, you know, all over Boston. So, you know, the first thing I saw was a large monument and um the Bunker Hill Monument. So I thought, okay, I'll go climb that. That's 294 steps. And the problem with, with monuments is they're effectively tourist traps. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'd go like at a time I thought, okay, nobody's possibly going to want to go to like see a site, you know, at these odd hours. And, you know, I get somewhere because I, I want to go fast or with purpose or, you know, get a momentum going. And sure enough, you know, I'd come up or down and there's like a group of three or a group of four or a group of five and they're, you know, struggling and, you know, I'd have to go sideways or stop or, you know, and it just would kill, you know, the workout because I'm not doing it once. I want to do it like five times. Right. <clears throat> so so that was, you know, that just sucked, actually. Um, and then I came across um, 100 Federal Street and the very the the people that had the top of this building uh, was the Boston College Club. And I was not an alumni of that, but it was a social club that used to run events. Um, you know, they would, it, they had a great view of the city. They ran, um, you know, like a wine club. They had, you know, a, different talks and stuff like that. And, and my husband had joined um, with his firm and we were there one day and the general manager was a sweetheart, you know, a, a woman who would hang around and sort of get to know her clients. And one day, I, you know, I was telling her what I was struggling with. And she said, well, you know, why don't you think about our staircase, you know, in the building? Because they had 40 floors. It was a sky rise. And I was like, oh, my God, that would be awesome. You know, because rain or shine or whatever, you know, a staircase. Why not? Um, what I didn't realize is that most and what I would come to realize is that most buildings, you know, don't really air condition or heat their staircases because it's considered a cost. Right. And um, nor do they really have cameras in them. Um, you know, I'd find all sorts of shit. I'd find like cigarette butts, cockroaches, you know, you name it. Like, you know, pe people would even over time, t you know, have me spy and tell me who was smoking in there, you know, like what floor and what people and, you know. But at the end of it, uh, what she did was she said, let me go to the head of facilities. And um, since Bank of America was the main tenant and who had the building, she said, let me ask him. As it turned out, he saw himself as a former, quote, superhero. And that was luck because he was very empathetic. And so he said, um, it, it works for me. I just want you to sign a, uh, you know, a waiver. You know, if you die on the premises, it's not my fault. And, uh, you know, give me a doctor's note. So done and done. 
And uh, so I started there. And one of the funniest moments was when Mitt Romney was running for president in 2012. Um, you know, I, I was training with a weighted vest with all these tiny little uh, pockets for little two ounce weights. And, you know, had the shorts on and I probably looked like a police officer with the, with the vest and, you know, all the stuff. And German shepherds running around. Nobody was allowed in. You know, they were doing the bomb stuff. But I'm in because I have the pass. And, you know, my husband comes in after work with guests and he, he's not allowed in. And I'm just sort of mouthing like, sorry, you know, <laughs> like on the other side of the on the other side of the, you know, ropes and just carried on in the staircase. You know, I always had all access and it was just very funny. But there I went. And then when I got to New York, I was fortunate to meet Bernardo Office Management because they own and operate uh, their real estate and they gave me access to One Penn Plaza. And that's where I trained for uh, K2. And K2, um, you know, uh, One Penn Plaza, of course, was bigger, you know, uh, New York City skyrise now. Um, and what was interesting, they would give me an employee badge and um, I would take the tallest staircase. And they had something every year called a fireman's, um, like a fireman's run, where the employees of the building would run for charity for lung cancer. And so the, the people on the, at the desk always just thought I was an employee training for the lung cancer run. And then finally, one day I came, you know, I think it was maybe five times and I came up and down and suddenly one of the guys called me over. And he was like, you know, Nessa O'Brien. I was like, yeah. And I kind of walked over there and he points to his like laptop and he's like, is this you? And I was like, oh, no. And he had he had Google up and he's like, he's like, you're not really running for the lung cancer thing, are you? And I was like, guilty as charged, you know, like, no. And. And, and I said, what made you look that up? And he's like, you were going way too fast. <laughs> it was just really, really funny. It's like, <laughs> he's like, you're in here way too often. You go way too fast. And nobody else is like that dedicated to the lung cancer run. <laughs> but, but there are downsides to climbing a staircase because you're always going in one direction. So one side is a little bit more, um, you know, built, like, let's say you're always turning right. And, you know, one side's a little bit more, um, you know, I'd say slightly stronger. So you get a little bit jaded, but you can break the monotony by skipping steps, playing games, counting, using music, using a weighted vest. Like I would play games all the time. So how many stairs in total was the longest office building? Oh God. Uh, uh, probably, I don't know, a thousand something, um, you know, and the, the thing is over time, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count the stairs. I'd look at the floors, you know, like if it was 55 floors, you know, there might be so many floors per so many stairs per floor and they swing around and, you know, it was, you know, it was it was just trying to know, like, if you're halfway, like, can I take can I can I keep, you know, running or not running, running, but, you know, trotting or whatever your pace is this many floors before I have to, you know, uh, walk, um, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. Up is always easier than down, as you, you probably know, because down is a, you know, can 
can do your knees in a little bit more. So yeah, it's treacherous for the knees. It's um, easy if you don't take care of and and place your feet diligently. Um, you can mess them up. Uh, yeah, I had some problems with my knees in the past. It's very important to take care of good care of the knees. Yeah. So so over time, I and and I think maybe like I would do three up, three down, and then maybe the last two just get, um, up only and take the elevator down. Well, everyone knows how to prepare for 8,000. That's gaining a lot of vertical gains. However, what about going to the North and the South Pole? You must be dragging tires behind you. What kind of uh, sceneries happened in Boston when you were pulling tires? Or was that in London as well? No, no, that was Boston. But it's um, so so the big difference between high altitude and polar is is really, um, I guess, how, how you train. So if you if you think about high altitude, you're going into an environment that's difficult to breathe. So that that is the limiting factor. And the cardiac cardiovascular strength becomes more important than weightlifting. So I'd even go so far as to say excess muscle and excess here competes with the limited resource of oxygen because that that limited oxygen has to go to your brain heart and lungs so the body type that wins at high altitude is the marathon man not the bodybuilder and so 8000 meters you want cardio and you want vo2 max uh hiit the high intensity interval training you want aerobic fitness, you want short periods of intense anaerobic exercise with less recovery periods, you know, that kind of thing where you can build up your, your um, cardio endurance. Um, for the polar stuff, and that's hard, nobody likes to feel that um, lactic acid, you know, feeling. But when you're pulling sleds, you can go the other way, um, especially if you're going coastal, you know, 700 kilometers versus, you know, last degree, 111 kilometers, because it's a different kind of endurance. This is, you've got to pull the sleds. The sleds are heavy. Um, you know, you're going to wake up every day pulling a sled. You're going to be packing it and pulling it again. And you want a few pounds of muscle and you want fat to keep you warm. So you got to put on some weight. Um, you need the leg and back strength. You need the core strength. You need your arm and chest strength, and you need to keep moving. Um, both of those environments are really cold, so you you want you want uh, you know heavy weights, you know lower reps, and but you still have to concentrate on breathing because you don't want to overheat, and the layering because you don't want to overheat or you're going to end up with you know climbing in a material that um, you know will turn to ice. Mm. So I'd, I'd say they're just very different. So the Grand Slam is reaching the seven summits and the North and the South Pole. I'm curious, when does this idea emerge? Uh, yes. So David Hempelman Adams was the first to do that in 1998. He was uh, just over 40 years old at the time. Um, that's way before I would do it. I would do it in 2013. Um, and by that time, there were you know 40 people on the list. I didn't invent it. Um, there were two different, some people called it Adventures Grand Slam, some called it Explorers Grand Slam. All I really did was bring structure to it by, um, you know, investing in a URL, building a website, reaching out to everybody on the list to see if they wanted to add anything about themselves. Um, 
and really the only people I couldn't verify were the Chinese. Um, you know, one or two I could, but for the most part they were hard to find. There's a whole lot of variation in the work that you do. If you go, um, you know, seven summits plus coastal poles versus non-coastal poles. So, you know, I, I split the people out so that you could see sort of three lists today. You know, if you look um, on the website, you'll see 12 people who have done the seven summits plus full north and full south pole coasts. And then um, you'll see uh, maybe like uh, eight or nine people who have only skied from one coast. So that means they've they've done the seven summits plus either, you know, the North Pole or the South Pole fully coastal and the other the last degree, and then 49 people who've done just last degree both. But it's a terrible job because, you know, I, I mostly end up the one, being the one that says no to somebody who says, hey, you know, I flew to the pole or I ran a marathon or I did a half degree. Why can't I be added? And it's like, look, it's very clear what these other people have done. If you want to be part of this, you have to do these things. And I get shit all the time, but all I'm doing is trying to create a group of people who did the same thing. And, um, but you'd be surprised how many times people try to break that. And it's like, it's not that. If you want to do something else, create something else. Otherwise, there's, not, there's no way to compare. Do you think that some of these people weren't aware of the fact they were doing the Grand Slam at the time? Or were they just collecting these summits and going to the North and the South Pole just for the fun of it? Uh, is there a yeah, possibility? I mean, oh, correct. Yeah, I didn't know what, what Explorer's Grand Slam was. I, I didn't hear about that until I think Stuart Smith was the one who told me uh, on Shishapangma. I had no idea what it was. Because as you climb, you run into people and then people introduce you to more concepts and then, you you know, you learn what they are mm -hmm. and and you think, OK, well, I, I probably will never do that. But suddenly you, you're on Vincent and you realize, wait a minute, I'll probably never be in Antarctica again. So if I'm going to be in Antarctica, could I not do the South Pole? And once you're committed to the South Pole, you think, well, shit, is that is the other one the one melting? <laughs> you know, you know I, I probably should go and see that <laughs> because that's actually everybody was worried about the South Pole because of, um, you know, at one point that was where where the, all the problems were. But today it's very much the Arctic. Which of the seven summits was hardest for you? And, and believe it or not, when I did seven summits, <laughs> ironically, Kilimanjaro of all the mountains faced me with some severe problems. Uh, I had um, explosive diarrhea for many, many days, and I was uncertain whether or not I should re reach the top. Um, you went back twice to Kilimanjaro, I've heard. Yeah, but... absolutely. And I did have, I had diarrhea on my second time too, so I, I totally get that. And You're and, in the same club. <laughs> yeah, and, and I can tell you that uh, climbing with diarrhea is uh, just, is the worst because for exactly those reasons, you're so bloated. And as you're going higher, it's getting worse. And I, I completely recommend that people turn around. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and uh, I had to leave the team to go a little faster because it was the last of my seven summits, so I could do it. But I just, um, wow, it's not fun. Takeaway uh, from this is never underestimate a mountain. Yeah, completely. I so I think for me, uh, I I was thinking about this. You know, I was prepared for Everest, so you know. People want to vote Everest for that because you just do so much work for Everest. But the reality is, is that I was prepared for Everest. I was not prepared for how hard Karsten's Pyramid was going to be. And so I probably have to give Karsten's Pyramid uh, the vote here. Mm. Um, you know, it, it just it started with, uh, you know, a motorcycle, you know, a motorcycle ride. Evil Knievel picks me out of the lineup. Um, you know, it starts pouring rain and, you know, we stop and I pull out my rain jacket, you know, I hand it to him for a second so I can put everything back in the backpack and he puts it on. I'm not joking. He puts on my rain jacket and I'm so embarrassed. I can't, I, I don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm nothing if not a gentleman. Right. So we continue to the spot and, um, you know, literally, you know, it's just mud, canopies of jungle, heat, humidity, one hand for an umbrella for the massive rain, one hand for a walking stick for the mud, constantly hitting my head, slipping, balancing, crossing rivers. I mean, poor Kurt Wedberg, you know, he had frostbitten toes. Every time there was a log to cross, he shimmied on his butt across the um, the logs because he didn't trust his toes. And, um, you know, and the negotiation with the Mani and Dani tribes were hilarious because the women were allowed to compete, but all the, all, the men just followed them. They'd let the women work and followed them to the camps. It was absolutely hilarious. Um, and then, you know, that GoPro roll of film I just threw away because it was filled with profanity. And, you know, here I am, I, you know, rip my rain pants and, you know, right in the middle and, you know, mooned everybody all day. It was just awful, awful. Everything that could go wrong would go wrong. When I hear you, it, it sounds just like a comedy show. Oh, it's, it's the, it would be a great Monty Python skit. It, it is, if I could do the hairdressers of, the hairdressers equivalent. <laughs> exactly. But, but with the tribal, like, you know. Legendary. Correct. It's just, it's too funny. It's, it's everything is just hilarious and we do get held for ransom three times so you know and i do try the international language of chocolate which was you know interesting but yeah did it work it it was interesting it it worked for a short time but um yeah when you have fire and and axes and um machetes it's you know that's a little bit more powerful steel over chocolate chocolate is mightier than the pen (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) you know there's a lot of things that you also conducted in the name of science and you contributed to a number of research and scientific projects you've been investigating the effects of nocturnal hypoxic exposure on high altitude mountaineering for instance that was a manaslu yeah and the testing of thinning of high altitude glaciers that was on the goodwin austin glacier in pakistan and illustrating the impact of climate change at the equator in advance of COP26. 
21 in conjunction with project 25.0. There's a lot of research expeditions. What did the teams learn from these scientific expeditions? Yeah, so basically, I think today, if I can help it at all, I really like to conduct science on an expedition because I realize that scientists don't really have the money or the time, nor frankly, do they want to risk their life to get what they need. And we're going there. So it, it occurred to me one day that we are like the stunt men and women for the scientists. Um, go ahead, lower us into the crevasse, take us down in the submersible. We'll, we'll take the risk and we'll get the data. Um, we, we've just never really put these two things together, but they're a perfect match. Um, and then we're able to give something back to the world and it's a great evolution, which transforms, I think, an adventurer to an explorer um, and also helps bring science, you know, advanced science, which is great. Um, and I think everybody is up for this if, if they know how to do it. Yeah. So if you take Challenger Deep, you know, that's I'm part of a team mapping the pool and we might come to that in a little bit. Um, you know, for the glacier samples on the Karakoram, um, basically I, I was testing for radiogenic isotopes and that's basically to see if there's lead content in the ice. And depending on the type of lead that shows up, we can age the ice. So every single event that might have taken place over time had a different type of lead. So if it were the nuclear tests in the 60s, that's very different than the type of lead that would have come out of Fukushima, let's say. Um, so it's, it's an old way of doing it in a, in a slightly clumsy way of doing it, but at least you can tell uh, maybe what was responsible and because what was, what was responsible had a time date stamp on it, therefore, you know, what the age is. So let me give you an example. When, when I took the glacier samples, um, I started with 10 liters. Now, that year we had an accident with a rock fall and I lost two liters. <laughs> okay. huh. So that's okay. But I still had eight. <clears throat> so I went eight liters down. And in those eight liters down, I was able to... Uh, take that back, um, these samples, and what they did was they went and ran um, a mass spectrometer and looked for the type of lead content. Now, they didn't know what they'd find, but they did find um, eventually the same type of lead content from Fukushima. Interesting. Now, what's great about that is it. they also had found it in the Tibetan Plateau, which is not so far from the Karakoram. So what they were able to see was, okay, when Fukushima happened, that was, that was two events almost simultaneously. That was a tsunami and an earthquake. And so you had um, effectively air pollutants and water pollutants, but, but the air pollutants that would have ended up in the glaciers would have gone up in the westerlies and over, say, 21 days ended up in these um, plateaus and in these glaciers. Now, that event took place in 2011. So effectively, going down eight liters is telling me that that ice is not new ice. It's really it's oh, sorry. It is new ice. Rather, it's not old ice. And also, it tells you that it's mildly contaminated, right? So we're boiling water, 
But these findings are baffling because we are really a small planet when you consider these atoms and these molecules being transported with the winds and now dispersed over an enormous area. But still, we can see the effects of these pollutants from a small geographical place, and it's been distributed all over the planet. That really makes us understand how everything is interconnected. Yeah, correct. So, so uh, you know, if you think of the planet as Gaia, you know, one world, one planet, one ocean, you know, there is no isolated event. Anything that happens somewhere, especially nuclear, that that this this will affect you, you whoever you are, wherever you are, will feel that. It, it's not it's not Japan's problem, I guess is what I mean to say. It might have happened in Japan, but make no mistake, the, our weather patterns and our ocean patterns will make sure that any catastrophe that happens anywhere in the world will show up on your doorstep. And so, the, the sorry, the person that ran that was the U.S. Geological Survey in Denver, Colorado. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so, so that's just like one example. Now, you can also use yourself as an experiment, and this is fun too. So, you know, uh, one one thing that was quite popular at the time was the hypoxic tents, and you could use these at sea level to quote, um, you know give yourself a, a head start. You know, if you're going to go at high altitude, why not, you know, put a hypoxic tent over your bed and, and um, you know, pump up the um, altitude. So I did a study with Mass General Hospital, and the, the problem with a lot of the hypoxic um, offerings is that they are not hypobaric, meaning um, that they are not um, going through an oxygen exchange. Um, what they're doing is they're adjusting nitrogen. So it would be extremely expensive to have hypobaric chambers in every bedroom, as you can imagine. These are really only military and, um, you know, few and far between. Maybe a each country has, you know, a couple of them. But most people don't really understand that. So when they say, oh, you're at 20,000, you know, feet and, or meters or 6,000 meters, 20,000 feet, whatever you are, you know, you think you're now that there's some sort of oxygen exchange taking place, but really, in effect, they're only changing the nitrogen. So you wake up feeling like shit, let's say. But the reality is, is if you don't change the if you don't change the oxygen, you're not going to get a, a change in EPO, and your red blood cells are not going to increase. So, if you take if you're taking as I did with Mass General, you're taking blood before and after and during these experiments. You can see that in fact, you know, you might be worse off. So I was worse off. But having said that, let me tell you a little interesting thing. There's something called a placebo effect, and that is if you're given preferential treatment. So I'm given a hypoxic tent and I'm not shown my results before or after, but I'm told it will work. And I believe it will work because I'm given something special. This can be powerful enough to convince your mind 
that it's working. So, I, and this, this did happen to me because I absolutely, all my statistics went, were worse off. I went to Manislu thinking I was better off. And so psychologically, I was performing like I was better off, even though physically I was worse off. So it's, 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 a, astounding. It's, a, it's amazing what your head can do to overrule the body because that's how powerful the head is. Mm. Because when I came back and I saw the actual statistics, I was like, oh, my God, thank God I didn't see that. <laughs> because if I had saw that, I absolutely would have performed worse. But at Manislu, do you recall that you were functioning and performing well? You didn't experience any severe headaches or symptoms of high altitude? No, it wasn't. I, I mean, toward the very, very end, I, I tried to come down from the summit all in one go. And we were quite knackered and it was it was a it was a hard slog. Um, and I probably misjudged the time of day and came back in the dark. I didn't really like that. What I would say is if you're interested in, in doing science, you know, um, is join something like SES to me is great. Scientific and Exploration Society, SES.org, founded in the 60s and 70s. It's more focused on the future than the past. Organizations like that can help you, like liaise with people who are universities, not-for-profit think tanks, you know, set you up with partners for stuff like this and at least put you with your peer group so you can liaise with other people and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going here. You know, what what do you think uh, people would be interested in in, the, in this place? Very good recommendation. I'm sure there are many out there who find this very um interesting and yeah. Thanks advice. yeah just get involved uh, so. because you, you can use yourself as an experiment or you can always I mean I even did diamox and high altitude to see that there's a direct correlation between diamox and kidney stones there, there's all sorts of stuff you can do there's so much that's not known let me put it that way let's jump to k2 and uh, k2 second tallest mountain in the world you made it to the top of this formidable mountain on your third attempt. Here's the million dollar question. If you could have looked into the crystal ball and seen the future before your first bid, knowing that it would take you three tries before you reach the top, would you still have done it? Um, it's a great question. Um, I think the answer would be no. I would not knowingly want to climb K2 three times. Um, but without the crystal ball, getting one camp higher each year, there's always additional data. And with that comes hope. And what going to Pakistan did over three years was introduce me to, um, you know, amazing country, amazing people, and helped me build strong friendships that I still have today. So in hindsight, there's no regret. But the question laid out as it is, you know, I wouldn't knowingly want to do it three times. I've been there four times now, <laughs> not planning on my fifth attempt. You mentioned lead on the glaciers and the pollutants. What I found is that I can't stand the uh, lack of hygiene on these uh, obscure places. 
So whenever I go to Pakistan, I always get the stomach bug and it just ruins my entire expeditions. Doesn't matter how fit I am, how well prepared I am, how cautious and how much due diligence has been in the entire project, I seem to fail. When you were doing some studies, did you encounter um, particles or germs or bacteria that's not supposed to be there? We didn't look for them, um, you know, but, but, I, but I remember that last year, um, you know, people started off sick with, um, you know, kind of nasal infections and stuff that wouldn't go away. Um, they came from Nangma Parabit first, you know, Fairy Meadows. And, um, you know, my, my uh, base camp cook couldn't really shake that off. Um, so, you know, it, it, is, it is tough. Um, you know, and it's not the kind of thing that, that is easily cured. And, of course, any antibiotics have side effects. So, you know, that's not always a good answer either. Maybe the placebo will work good on that too. Yeah, exactly. That would be good if I could have one of those in my head. But you, what, what happened in the end? Did you end up climbing? Um, you climbed Broad Peak. I summited Broad Peak on my third attempt. First try was 2012. Second one was in 2017 when I met you on K2. Uh, we didn't reach the top. It, we were probably something like 30 meters short from the main summit, vertical. But it was a good 40 minutes, you know, scramble, traverse to the main summit. So it doesn't count as to summit assault. So I went back in 2018 and uh, summited with my friend David Reske and uh, finally uh, climbing the last remaining meters. Oh, so Broad Peak has been... Uh, testing my patience and, and my karma for a long time. I'm not sure whether I, uh, K2 will ever let me uh, linger uh, on its top. So, so I uh, politely say thank you, but no thank you for any more expeditions to K2. There are so much other you know, amazing things that I can um, do with my time and my fitness. Yeah, of course. Of course. Climbing, climbing K2 is, it's like fitness peels off of you like water <laughs> on a ghost. Uh, it's just amazing. You come back and you're fatter percentage wise than when you got to the mountain in the first place. It's just not very good for health or any fitness whatsoever. Uh, but uh, you finally made it. You finally made it on the third try. Were you happy? Yes, I, of course, absolutely. Um, you know, we were we worked really hard to get that summit um, in 2017. Uh, you know, people did ask if it was summit fever. Um, you know, the only thing I can say is is maybe. You know, we did check each other at least twice on the way up to see if everyone was all right and asked every single person if anyone wanted to turn around. Um, plus we eyeballed behavior, you know, of everyone along the way. Um, and, you know, I just, I always have to stress that our summit was normal because people forget about the 16 hours because 2004, Adirne Pasaban was 15 hours arriving at 5 a.m. 2014, the three female Sherpa took 16 hours arriving at 3.30. 
our team took 16 hours arriving 445. You know, that's just how long a summit takes. So it's just that they don't happen all that often. So people forget and they don't think these are normal. But it is worth normal doesn't mean that things couldn't be improved. And that's where I always look back and I say, okay, um, you know, I always look and say, okay, what, what could I have done differently or what could, what could have been, what could have been better? And for me, the learning is, um, you know, when I, when I went in 2015, um, I went in a large international group and I realized that I would never summit K2 in a large mixed international group because to summit K2 would take more risk. And in a large international group, you're only as good as your weakest link, um, regardless of who the leader is. So it was not about uh, the leader. It was that they were going to have to manage to the lowest common denominator. So I I led the team the next year in 2016, but I made an important discovery. And that was regardless of how much I thought I was in control, when an avalanche took place at, at Camp 3, I realized that I, I didn't really control my resources, i.e. the Sherpa, as much as I thought I did. Because when the avalanche happened, both Di Gilbert and I were, were running expeditions, and we both found that our Sherpa were wanting to do what the other Sherpa were doing, which was go home. So it was basically... Uh, Mingma from Seven Summits, who sat down with us and said, both of your problems are that the Sherpa don't see you as regular full-time employees. And it was quite insightful. I I don't, actually, he was doing us a favor by by being very uh, point blank and honest with us. Because we, we were looking to stay and we were looking to see, you know, would he, would he, um, you know, uh, you know, potentially like, uh, you know, uh, does he have resources that could stay with us? You know, we, we were looking at all sorts of different things that, that might work, but, but he was, he was quite honest. He's like, look, you know, and, and it makes sense. <clears throat> People aren't going to go the extra mile for you if, if they don't work with you every year. Mm. So when I finally went up that final year, um, you know, I, I partnered with the Sherpa I had met the year before. And, you know, we agreed that I'd take the K2 permit. He'd take the Nangma Parbat, or Nangma Parbat permit. We'd leverage my Pakistan relationships. And the most important thing for both of us was that we'd be self-sufficient. And as a Sherpa, he'd be, he'd be in charge of the Sherpa. So... In terms of what could have been improved, it comes down to when I look at at the things that happened and you look at mountain stories and things that had happened over time, it starts from the beginning. Because when we all arrive and my Sherpa team starts with Nangma Parabet, they come over to K2 with frostbitten toes. And that's a big that's a big warning and worry for me because the, my, a lot of the team's goal and my goal is definitely K2. But we had a really, really interesting time 
um, where as we were departing for to, to thread the, su the summit window, and I remember seeing you at Camp 2, so you might have actually already been up there for the summit window. But as we were heading up for, for the actual summit bid, um, uh, the, lead, the lead Sherpa said to me, uh, well, is, is it possible that we can wait at Camp 3 just one night so, that, so the Chesson team can catch up to us? And then we can put ropes in to the summit together. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Our number one, you know, you know, parameter was to be self-sufficient. This team on Chesson is climbing a different route. The team's one day behind. So far, hasn't been terribly successful in climbing that route. Chesson's always hard. And we're threading a wet weather window needle, you know. So I just asked one question, and that was, what is it that you don't have that you need? Being in charge of the Sherpa team. And he said nothing. And I said then, I would say no, because it's too risky. I'm responsible for this team. You're responsible for this team. And sure enough, we get to camp three and nobody's there. I'm not saying they're, they're easy decisions. I'm saying that you have to make a decision. Um, when we go for the summit from camp four, I asked Dawa, who's with me, to short rope me because we're not moving. And what do I see? I see the two guys in the front are the only two that are not on oxygen. They're leading the fixing team. And they are without supplemental oxygen. They're going without oxygen and they are the leaders. <laughs> They're leading the fixing team, exactly. So are they going faster or slower? Slower. So, so I, I went up to the lead Sherpa who's in charge of the Sherpa and saying, what are you doing? They're going slower. They should not be in front. It's not that they're not good, but they're not on oxygen. And we should be leapfrogging. There should be a team ahead. So it was the Pakistani that told me that they didn't bring enough rope. And that seems to be notorious for K2. Oh my God. You went to the summit and miraculously, the yeah. clouds disappeared. The clouds disappeared, exactly. And this was, I think, it was at 4.30, and I remember we were sitting in base camp. I just turned around because I was going without oxygen and carrying ropes to camp three, and I concluded and made the assessment that this is too much risk. Uh, we, had, we saw some slab avalanches, etc., in camp three, and we were not prepared to, you know, jeopardize uh, climbing higher in fog and in low poor visibility. But coming down, we were just praying for you guys. And uh, actually, down in base camp, it was quite nice. But there was this cloud that was surrounding the summit, and you were walking in this cloud, and and then you came up and. 
I'm getting the goosebumps here. Yeah. A, how in earth did that feel? It, it must have been, you know, the lucky shot. Uh, perhaps there was a reason for that slow motion. And so you could have this uh, million dollar view. Uh, on the there summit. is that. There is that. Is it Rene Dumal who says, you know, what's above knows what's below, but what's below does not know what's above. It's, it's a very powerful phrase because, you know, who knew that we would climb out, if you will, of the weather, you know, into the bluebird day, um, you know, that the skies would just open and it would just be, you know, fantastic and beautiful, um, you know, and, and for the rest of the climb, you know, down back to camp four, but we didn't know that, it, you know, the weather forecast didn't say that we were climbing through shit most of the way. Um, you know, it, it was, in fact, I, I always did a cartoon, I, I, you know, cartoon, political cartoons are, you know, they'll get you killed in some countries, but yeah, but I, but I, I was speaking. Yes. Yeah, correct. And so I, I always had this sort of one cartoon where I felt like, you know, because I came down and so many people said, you know, I, I, I was praying for you. I was praying for you. I was praying for you. And I said, I know you were because I got there and the, the bluebird day opened up. But, you know, somebody would say, you know, I, I was praying, you know, to Olive for you. And somebody else said I was praying, you know, to, you know, to, to God or Jesus or I was praying, praying to Buddha or somebody. And so suddenly I saw all these men and they were always men you know, up in the clouds and, you know, another request for Vanessa, another request for Vanessa. And then who the hell is she like in all these mixed religions? And suddenly it was like, you know, confused channels up at the top. And, you know, just this funny little cartoon of, you know, I guess we got to let this one go kind of thing. Um, but anyway, very, very, very cute. But I said to everybody that I knew they did because of what happened with the sky. We can speak hours about this. And, and it's it's all very interesting and uh but i'm sure that the audience is curious uh, out of reach when uh, we can't now we can't restrain ourselves from this anymore um, let's go from touching the sky to venture down to the abyss to the challenger deep which is 10,925 meters at least that's the depth you went to yep you, you joined the Caladan Oceanic Ring of Fire Expedition to the Pacific Ocean. Yes. And you were there to serve at the bottom of, of three pools that constitute Challenger Deep. And that was in a partnership with NOAA. So on June 12, 2020, you descended together with Victor Versova and Kathy Sullivan. And you went to the Eastern Pole. Apparently, the Eastern Pole has the deepest depth. And you're spending three hours mapping the bottom with the dive scanning. And that's approximately one mile of desolate bottom terrain. And you found out that the surface is not flat. In fact, it's tilting a little bit. What I'd like to know is how many years of diligent work does it take to do this? How do you prepare for this in the first place? So... Um... Let's see. I, I had met Victor um, in 2013, so I had known him for seven years. Um, I 
he is uh, part of the Explorers Grand Slam. So you will see his name on the Explorers Grand Slam. He's done the seven summits and the last degree to North and South Pole. Um, in fact, he'll 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 laugh and you know tell you that I tried to take him off because I I forgot I met him and um, forgot his name and uh, you know two years later when he tried to put himself up on the the website and I was like hold on you know I don't I, you didn't prove that you did the North and South Pole and I'm always like really you know. Uh, giving him a hard time. I, yeah, I gave him a hard time. So he tells the story like, you know, that I was, you know, an impossible person because I kept trying to take his name off and made him prove his North and South Pole kind of thing. But that's fine. Um, so but the reality is, is w when we met, um, he went off to uh, do five deeps. I went off to do five eight thousanders and, you know, our our lives came together and then diverged. Um, so, you know, he. You know, but, but uh, also we didn't live in the same place. You know, he was uh, middle of, uh, you know, of the U.S. state. I went back and forth between London and, and uh, New York. And um, so, you know, there wasn't always, uh, you know, time to, um, you know, to, to bump into people either. Um, so what happened is uh, in 2019, he had completed sort of the end of his five deeps. And I saw him in Portugal. Um, where he was speaking and um, at the tail end of it. And I, I, it was Lisbon. And I basically said something like, you know, would you ever go back? And he said, um, he, he didn't think he'd go back. Um, but, you know, he was running out the door and sort of, you know, give him a call, that kind of thing. So um I ended up chatting to him and what he was really looking to do was uh, go to space. <laughs> so I know where this is going, Vanessa. <laughs> yeah. So he was like, you know, I've, I've done all the diving, um, you know, I'd actually just like to go to space. So he had his eye on something called the Explorer's Trifecta. So he wanted to go to space, you know, um, do the trench and, you know, kind of, he's done his, um, Everest thing, and that was his next thing. And I said, "Well, that's great, but you're you're way ahead of me. Um, you know, I think there's so much more to do when I've been looking at the oceans, and it, it's amazing to me that 90% is still unmapped. Um, and you know, these vehicles only went one way one time. You've got the only vehicle that can continue to dive. And so he talked about wanting to sell it and and all of this stuff, but you know, look, he spent $40 million building it. So there aren't a lot of buyers. And um, so anyway, long story short, you know, um, I think he, he looked around and, and went and saw if he could find some buyers. And then next thing I knew, um, you know, he was um, looking to put together another dive and with space in mind had, um, had talked to Kathy and Kathy of course was an ambassador of space having, um, you know, gone to space herself and he had lined her up. And since that was already something that he was planning to do, it was easy to add myself to the team because now an expedition was taking place. Um, to, to, to have any sort of um, proper uh, data, uh, even on one pool, 
um, which could be, you know, 20 meters long, you still have to draw maybe four lines and do, you know, four transects to get valuable data. So he'd need multiple divers and to get as many different divers as possible, you know, you, there's just a, you know, sort of a different um, validation. So he just started, you know, looking for a team that would, you know, partner with NOAA. And the goal really was not new species. The goal was just to map, um, you know, the bottom of that deepest uh, trench and uh, look at the salinity, the temperature and the depth and, you know, see, see what's down there. So, But you did encounter some new species, did you? Um, no, not new species. We had seen, um, you know, polychaetes, which are... Um, that they're a form of like a bristle worm, uh, which was more on the lander, not actually on our submersible. We caught that on a camera of a lander. Um, and there were certainly things that were coming up in the sand as we as we did the transect. Um, but I wouldn't say they were new. You know, there's definitely life down there. And it's incredible because of the 16,000 pounds per square inch. And they uh, look like aliens. And yeah, they're they're all weird looking because let's face it, it's completely dark. There's so much pressure, so you don't you don't need eyes, and you know so much pressure you can't really form a proper vertebrae. So, you know, uh, what kind what kind of creature you know would you design? You know, if you gave that to a child and said, okay, you don't need eyes, you don't need a spine. You know, and, and uh, you know, you're, and some of them just look weird. They, they look weird because they, you don't have to worry about what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if they have mirrors, they can look at themselves in the mirror. It's too dark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, they're, they're interesting. Is there a way we can compare climbing to the top of the world, summiting Mount Everest with going to the very lowest place on Earth? So I, I sort of tried to do that a little bit. I mean, what I saw was, look, both are high risk. Um, you know, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, look, if, if you say like for every four that climb K2, one dies, you know, that's, that's just statistics. But, you know, you're going to that much pressure, something could implode. You know, you're taking a risk one way or another. Um, they're both in the dark. Funny enough, we climb in the dark and, of course, you know, that deep is in the dark. Um, they're both cold, right? You go up in the mountains and you're going deep in the ocean, it's cold. Although I will say people kept saying, oh, it's very, very cold. And and there's a, there's a picture of me, of me in the sub, like in a t-shirt, like heading to the bottom. I'm like, this is not mountaineering cold. Um, you know, I just, if you keep your feet warm, you're fine. But Really, if I had worn like all the stuff people were putting in my head, I would have been seriously sweating. Um, the, you know, both involve cramped spaces. Like, you know, you could be in a tent with like three people, but here you're in a sub, like cramped with you know two people. Uh, both can get you wet, right? So there's condensation in a sub, you know, dripping on your head or something like that. And of course, you know, you're always kind of a little bit wet when you're climbing. Um, both, I always joke that both have pressure, you know, in one way or another, you know, there's pressure underwater, but there's pressure climbing. Um, neither have oxygen. 
Uh, there's no oxygen underwater and there's no oxygen uh, as you climb high. So I like to compare them. I think they're very similar, but they're, of course, completely different. I think that many of us got aggravated when we saw the disturbing images from Victor Rousseau's dive to the Challenger Deep back in 2019 when he picked up a plastic bag at the deepest place on Earth. If we are to tackle this rampant decimation of the oceans with littering and plastics, how is that possible if we can't even let the deepest places on Earth be alone? You know, I remember that plastic incident and um, I remember asking about that. I, I don't actually know what that was. Um, but regardless, there is actually a place in the Pacific that's known as the Great Pacific Plastic Dump. So whether he picked one up or not, there is a place in the Pacific Ocean that gathers plastic. And I'm pretty sure that you could go through the plastic and find out like who's littering what country. Um, you know, for years, oceans have been abused, you know, with industrial waste, you know, factories would build on the, you know, on the side of rivers or the side of water. And, you know, the assumption was always water would be, uh, would renew, you know, um, you could just dump anything in there and it would just take care of itself. Um, and I, I just think it's, it's a dangerous uh, assumption because I don't know to what extent that there's not lasting damage in that thought process. Um, you know, uh, I know on the Hudson River, for example, you know, there's a nuclear plant shutting down, but they've had spills of, you know, um, tritium and things like that. You know, you just have an extra molecule, I think, with helium and you end up with something that has a half life of 12 years. You know, um, that's going to kill things. It's going to kill, you know, fish. It's going to kill, uh, you know, wildlife. It's going to kill stuff. So I, I, I don't know um, that, that any of these things are good. I don't know that. But, you know, when, when you think about pollutants, do you include the shipwrecks, <laughs> you know, that are sitting in the bottom of the floors? I mean, my God, World War II in the Pacific, how many things are sitting in the bottom of the floors that are full of lead? And, and when you say like 90% of the seafloors aren't mapped, I mean, and the end, the oceans are 70% of the planet. That, that's just so much we don't know. And, you know, here goes a plane missing, MAH370, whatever it is, in the ocean. We can't find it. So, and, and, I, and I have been underwater where, I, you know, I might be a kilometer from a lander. It has a beacon. I have sonar, and I can't find it. So it, it's just not easy. It's not easy to find things. Um, even if you know where they are. So I, I think it's, 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 it is a problem, but it's, I, but it also slightly baffles me if I, if I want to be a devil's advocate, if I say, okay, we spent 1.2 trillion on space programs to map the moon and Mars, 
And, you know, let's say that's 19 billion a year annually from when space program started, you know, what is the return on investment of that? Do you really think we wouldn't have cellular phones? You know, uh, I think that technology would have been with us anyway. What is scientists hoping to learn from these expeditions to the deepest places on Earth? So half of NASA's leading indicators for climate change are ocean related. So if I look, um, uh, you know, one, one, I took uh, samples, water samples this time uh, for the Natural History Museum at 10,900 meters. And I was inspired to do that because um, I saw that uh, the museum had taken water samples from 150 years ago to today and found that single cell organisms could not grow their shells because of the ocean acidification. So today's water sample to 150 years from today, you know what I'm saying? Like I, what I was trying to provide today would be to be compared against something 150 years from now, if that made sense. And, but that's the kind of thing that you can see which you wouldn't know if you didn't have a comparison. So you see, and to think that, okay, well, half of them might be atmospheric, half of them are ocean, but half is a lot. And half of, the ocean absorbs 25% of our carbon. So if we're worried about, you know, things like, you know, the, the two degrees Celsius or, you know, 1.5 or whatever we're going to end up at, oceans are part of that solution. Plus we get our food from the sea, our bodies consist of 60%, 70% water, depending on what organ we're looking at. But as human beings, we are primarily water. So the ocean to me is, is an important part of, of the makeup for the health of the planet and for the health of human beings. I'm borrowing a quote from you, Vanessa. No one can take away the knowledge, skills, and experience you acquire throughout your life. Your knowledge, skills, and experience inform your decisions as you move forward. So go ahead, take the biggest step you can. So I'm wondering what's next for you, Vanessa? You've been to the top of the world, you've been to the lowest part of the world, sky is not the limit. Will we be expecting you to see you in space soon? <laughs> oh God, um, let's see, uh, space is not, currently on the agenda, but I am interested in all sorts of things. I, uh, I, you know, I have the book coming out, which is, has been a labor of love, um, that was postponed because of COVID. So that will be out in March. Um, March, 2021. Yes. So I'm, you know, the delay is, uh, you know, it's, it's a temporary delay. That's okay. Um, so it's uh, Simon and Schuster are the U.S. publisher, and then Kirkus uh, is the U.K. publisher, and we've just sold the foreign rights, first foreign rights to Poland for Berta. Um, so you know that that'll be fun, and um, I th I think it's funny. So I hope people you know um, are able to to laugh while they read it, and you know see some see some of themselves in it, and you know. Um, it hopefully gets some inspiration from it too. And um, 
in in terms of projects, I mean, I'm I'm always looking for a project. Uh, I guess it depends, you know, what it is. You know, the minute I say something, you know, I, I never know. I'd be interested in everything from finding endurance, um, you know, Shackleton's ship, uh, Shackleton's anniversary of his death is coming up in 2022. Um, I would love to, you know, see that ship resurrect itself. Um, yeah, and not all of the ships, but the photographic plates. Uh, no, they were all broken. They were all broken. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, That that's the reason why... They did that in, on purpose, so they wouldn't go back. Correct, correct. But I think we could get the bell, mm -hmm. and I think the bell would be pretty cool, and you know, would be a nice visual, you know, symbolic visual stimulus, and maybe maybe even the wheel. But it's not a graveyard, so there's nothing preventing, uh, you know, um, you know, removing anything. Let me put it that way. But but it is three thousand meters down, so it's deep. Um, and in, you know, potentially packed ice. So there's always that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, there's just so many things I, I you know, I, I think if you're interested, just as long as you have interest, I, I, I would also climb again. I mean, I catch and jungle has always been interesting to me. Um, you know, I, it's the one place I think you don't touch the, the physical top with the something that's been agreed by the local village. Um, you know, it was Mesner's heart, hardest. Um, I think it's it sounds like a very sacred mountain. Indeed. And, and you know, and at the same time, you know, Pakistan, of course, is is you know a special place. So, you know, I, I'm always you know willing to go back there too. Um, so who knows? You know, you can never, never say never. So here's the question that I've been waiting for. Would you trade this life that you created now, going back to finance and business developer for Morgan Stanley, Barclay Bank, or Bank of America, or other arbitrary banks? No. <laughs> <laughs> if they're listening, you're not hired <laughs> exactly for lifetime. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I, I, you know, I think that's probably not the best use of, you know, what I what I could do right now. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that there's not um, things that could be done with those brands. Should they want to participate in a uh, expedition? I think those brands could be taken somewhere that's very uh, powerful. So should they be listening? I'd happily involve those brands on an expedition. How's that? I hope so. Perfect. If you could give three advices to people who feel the urge to undertake an adventurous life as a profession, what would they be? Uh, let's see. I think uh, I think if people want to uh, create change, they should um, they 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 should remember that they have that safety net. Um, they should uh, remember that they they have more support than they think they do. Um, 
and you know what, what if I guess you're talking now about actually doing something different with their life, right? Correct. So I think they should it, see sometimes you don't really know what you want to do. So there's people who know what they don't want to do and there's people who know what they want to do. Um, and they both end up in sort of the same place temporarily. But I think it, it does help to uh, get outside and, um, you know, maybe take, take some walks, uh, you know, go on some treks and, um, you know, clear your mind. And if you clear your mind, you, you leave some space for some ideas to, to come to you. Um, and you might be surprised at, you know, what answers, you know, you, you might find that, that has always been popular. People will, will just stop what they're doing and see what, what they find. Um, likewise, you can try something and if it doesn't work, go back. Um, but you know, the thing is you always have that safety net, like right where we started in the beginning. You always have the skills, experience, and knowledge that you have acquired in life that nobody can take away from you. So you you know, you don't you don't start off on the on as much as a back foot as you think you do. You you actually start off with a better set of armor than you might imagine. And I know this is a tough time. Like I, I listen to the telly and people are saying, Oh, you know, but but I'm worried, you know, I lost my job or I'm furloughed and you know I might have to do something new and you know, that's okay. You know, I think doing something new, they have to, they have to just approach it. You know, remember when I didn't know how to climb, my first thought was climbing is a skill and the skill can be taught, not, you know, and learned. You have to think, will you like it and will you be any good at it? Not immediately like, Oh no, I don't know how to do it. So go with it in a positive mindset that says, okay, you know, I'll give it a go. Let's see. Uh, let's see if I like it and if I'm any good at it. That that frame of mind is so important because you're not prejudging failure. You know, making mistakes is part of learning, and that's totally True. fine. We all fail. fail the failure. difference between winner and losers is that winners, they stand up and they continue. Yeah, it's totally fine. You know, fall on your ass, you know, slide down the mountain, do all of those things because you're going to get up next time and you're going to know what it feels like and it's not going to freak you out and scare you. And, you know, you're going to know what to do. It's, it's worse if you don't do those things because it'll happen at the wrong time and you won't know what to do. You want to make all those mistakes early on. And, and, you know, as much in, in, in business, as much, you know, in any, any job that you do, you want to make all the mistakes that you can and learn from them. Any last words you want to share? Uh, no, I, th I think it's great. I love that you're doing the podcast. I think it's, it's great uh, to share, um, you know, uh, your knowledge with people and, and the friends that you've met along the way. So thank you for doing what you're doing. And thank you for being on the podcast, Vanessa. It's been truly amazing having you here. We touched on base on many topics and uh, it's been um, educating and at the same time, very entertaining. So uh, if people want to find out more about you and 
where should they turn to? Yeah, website's great. It's um, it's Victor Oscar Bravo Vo Online dot com.